So for example, you know, you asked me when we started, I don't know if it was recorded, how do I feel today? And I said, I felt sad. And part of the reason I was feeling sad was I was thinking about childhood stuff and where I am and where I've not achieved. I was thinking about what I learned about you and your story and um, this uh, learning project story. And it was kind of making me sad. And that's okay. You know, you, you have to feel it's okay to enter into weakness. Um, you know, it's like if you want to build strength in a muscle, uh, you have to work on it. Uh, you know, if you've got poor lower body strength and great upper body strength, if you only worked on upper body strength, then you'd never get lower body strength. So I, that's why I think of it. To be a rounded individual means working on all kinds of strengths. And a lot of them are, I don't know, it, it's not a simple answer. Some things just don't taste good. But if you don't yeah. try them, you may never learn to like them. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we're going to speak with Dr. Lincoln Stoller. He is an author, a physicist, a psychotherapist, a hypnotherapist, an EEG biofeedback therapist, and the list goes on, folks. Lincoln, could you please introduce yourself, let people know just a little bit about you, please? Um, thanks. I'm, I'm really glad to talk to you. And uh, I can't tell you too much about myself be in, beyond what you said, except that maybe I, I never get along with any group I'm in. I, I, I guess I'm a really slow learner. You know, I'm 66 or something. And uh, I'm... I, uh, I've been involved in all these uh, projects, uh, degrees, and uh, areas of uh, social interaction. And my basic approach is uh, to go back to sort of innocence. Now, we'll talk about this project when we get there. But I, I've always felt that a childhood view, a childlike view of the world, is more rich than what we call an adult view. And I was thinking about this this morning, and I think that's because I think children are more emotionally exposed. They expose themselves emotionally, they interact emotionally, and they're sensitive emotionally. And as adults, we get really calloused. And I think we lose, maybe just because we need to protect ourselves. But uh, I think, that attitude, it always does me well in terms of my understanding, but in terms of groups, you know, most people don't don't appreciate it. Most people think they 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 uh, 
think lesser of kids and childhood innocence and stuff. So uh, as a scientist, I'm always asking the uncomfortable questions, you know, the obvious questions like, what the hell does this all mean? And everybody thinks, well, you should know that now, right? And uh, so I tend to get thrown out of these groups. Almost every group I'm in, I uh, feel I'm not getting the 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 most childhood answer if you will anyhow so i got into therapy after many years in physics and computers and business and i i find it one of the more rewarding places because now i do get to answer and well i don't answer but i certainly get to ask uh the questions about childhood and what does it mean and people work at that answer with me you know you don't get that in business you know, where everything's goal-directed and material yeah. or science either, really. So that's yeah, kind of where I am, working at, uh, uh, you know, Picasso had a great quote. He said it like, it took me a lifetime to learn to paint. And, and no, he said it took me years to learn to paint and a lifetime to learn to become a child again. And so, uh, you know, yeah. I, you know, we talk about the learning project, but that's my introduction. Yeah. Well, Lincoln, it's it's fascinating. The Learning Project. It, it's a book that carries you through uh, stages of life, and it explores life through the lenses of individuals and different people. You've got individuals like Oliver that was a dropout, and he aspires to be a film producer. And then you've got on the other end of the spectrum, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And everybody should recognize who that is. That's a good scope. Uh, It's a good range. And you've got in the elderly class, some fascinating individuals that have life lessons that have learned it's interesting when we speak with people and learn what they've experienced. A lot of us close ourselves off to other people's experiences, which I feel is so, so harming to ourself because really life I find is to be about connection, understanding others and diving into those hard topics and finding the truth of a child, that is really the key. When you find truth and no matter where it takes you, own up to it, that is really the spark of life. That is when you find your worth, your value, and so much more. Take us through what the experience was writing the book, but much more so interviewing the individuals and getting to know what the individuals truly were like. So the project was uh, something I started when I was uh, 40, maybe, and I never felt I'd answered the question of what learning was about. I mean, it's a kind of nondescript question. And I wanted to, uh, I reflected that I'd met a bunch of interesting people 
some were mentors and some were assholes, really. But even so, um, <laughs> you know, they leave a an imp- they leave footprints in my mind. That's right. So I wanted to go back. Well, not to the assholes, but I did want to go back to the people I felt really knew something that I might have missed and ask them questions I never asked them, like, you know, what's life about? Because I've been in their, you know, realm in some particular goal as a physicist or student or something or other. And so I went, I I, I, um, kind of made a list of the people that were mentored to me, mentored me. And I said, I'm going to go back to these people and ask them these bigger questions, these deeper, more personal questions. And I basically reduced the question to what did you learn? Why did you learn it? And what did it do for you? You know, what's the process of your growing up? And, you know, you ask this to a person who's 95, you're going to get a very different answer than if you ask it to a person who's 15. And so I was, you know, I have a, a good recollection of my childhood. Well, you know, not like, you know, photographic or anything, but I haven't connected to it. You know, you get into the family reasons for that. So I, I, I have a certain respect for childhood and, you know, my insights as a child or the questions that still are in my mind. So this project, I conceived of this project as of asking this question, not just to my mentors, that's what people usually do. They go to the famous people or the rich people or the successful people. But I wanted to go to kids and um, especially kids who I really th- thought were really bright or I don't, I don't mean like, you know, successful in school. I mean, just, you know, bright kids, you know, like Tom Sawyer kind of kids or uh, Huckleberry Finn type kids. And ask them this question and ask older people this question. And ask middle-aged people, you know, the kind of real go-getter, you know, ascending star type people. Um, And then I thought, this is the scientist in me, I thought, well, maybe it differs according to what their interests are. So I'm going to ask a dozen different interests. And, uh, you know, that means scientists, filmmakers, biologists, writers, actors, I, I thought I'd interview musicians too. It turns out musicians don't talk that well. Um, <laughs> it's not it's not their mode, you know. Yeah. And so it's kind of I just didn't find a lot, although I knew a few, but I didn't couldn't sort of get get those gears going. So I I did artists instead, and and so I wrote this book, the thirty three or thirty five interviews um, in eleven different subjects with roughly three different people in each subject, an old person, a young person, and a middle-aged person. And I found these people, uh, you know, the old people were the ones I knew mostly, found a few new ones. And uh, the young ones, I had to look around for my kids' classmates and uh, friends' children. And the middle-aged people I kind of reached out for in subjects that I thought, you know, because we, we we know some of these characters. Um one of the people I interviewed is Esther Dyson, who's really well known in the computer industry as a journalist. And I didn't know her at all before that. Um, and I found it really interesting, both because I was able to go back to people I knew and ask questions that I suspected were important and to meet people I didn't know and uh, have no idea how they'd respond. Well, I mean, sometimes I had some bad interviews, not bad, but, you know, not really fertile 
and those interviews didn't make it into the book. But most of the time, uh, I was pretty blown away. And, and, and people were too, you know, people said, nobody ever asked me these questions before. I mean, who sits down and asks you, you know, how has your soul grown? I mean, it, you, you'd sort of laugh at that or you'd think it was private or the young people said, uh, you know, their friends didn't talk like this. And some of the old people said, well, you know, I, I've, I've answered this question before, so I'll, tell, I'll read from my biography. And, you know, that's, that's okay. Um, so that's what the book is. It's these interviews asking this basically one question to a whole bunch of people. And uh, I think it's important to say that not, well, th they're not all normal. Um, some of them are uh, struggling or have struggled. Uh, either economically or with mental illness or um, physical disabilities. And uh, culturally, they're kind of all over the spectrum. Um, Gender-wise, it's interesting. A bunch of gay people, um, indigenous, Asian, um, black, white, uh, from all over the U.S. mostly. Uh, and... Uh, as you said, I, I divided it in ways. Well, so it is a book that you can buy and you get a printed format, but it's also online for free where you can rearrange the interviews by age or topic or um, well, mostly age or topic or just at random. And uh, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I didn't want to put my imprint on this whole thing to make it my vision. I didn't want these people to endorse what I said. So I didn't distill them. I didn't summarize and I didn't do much editing except to, uh, you know, make it clear and, and direct. And uh, most people who look at it will find it like a forest with not any clear path through it to answer that question of, what's important in your life and what did you get from pursuing it? Um, I mean, it's a kind of biblical question or religious almost. And I didn't want to be, a, you know, an apostle. I felt these were my apostles, these people. And I was just here to uh, record them. So uh, in the end, uh, you know, I feel it's worth mentioning in the end. Um, the thing that most came out was uh, the need to love yourself. And uh, when I got that message, which was most clearly given to me by a gay, black, academic woman, I went back and I could, I could hear it in everybody. Not everybody said it. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure anybody really said it except she. Um, but you could see that when they confronted obstacles, that it was their faith in themselves that uh, that carried them through rough water. And some of the water was uh, horrendously rough. I mean, there was one woman had uh, a mother who had what's called Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which is when your mother tries to poison you to death uh, repeatedly. And 
uh, you can just imagine what that does to you. I mean, that's like worse than being made into a child soldier. I think it's because you're vulnerable and you're constantly under attack by the people that you depend on. And, um, and it's hard to understand their stories sometimes, but there's a great deal of clarity too, because they've climbed out of something that you hope never to fall into. So that's the, that's the scope of the book. Uh, you know, it's not a book with the usual plot of, you know, building characters and tension in the plot and epiphany and resolution. So people either ignore the book or they're blown away by it. And uh, yeah, it's more of a discovery process. Than it is. And, you know, we'll talk, we'll, we'll mention it again. Cause I think readers, like I say, it's free online. Um, and, uh, I enjoyed making that online hypertext version with its navigational fluidity, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And, and you get into it and start reading it. It's like, wow, it seems like you've been there before. So it's really interesting. And, and the life stage portion of it, you know, advancing through the life and discovering how different, but yet have have the same focal point we we think different but we have the same focal points basically through our lifespan and you mentioned it earlier that you know as we grow older there's like a decay in our emotions our vulnerabilities our ability to accept what is we we have to kind of skirt it with all of this dirt and whatever else garbage we can throw on top of it. So I, I I'm interested in finding out more about that. Did you see a pattern of decay in the attitude of individuals over time based on what actually happened in their life you know i know i came from a pretty bad background where i had things happen where most people i don't know how they would have handled it but i find it as a learning process and i came out of it and i understand i wasn't in control of what my life was and i i couldn't put the boundaries that i needed to on that portion of my life where in middle age i'm able to do that and i can structure my life more in a meaningful way that i see right where my influence that i was raised with had no clear objective all, all they wanted was booze party and you know had no clear focus of what life truly is it didn't really hit me until maybe my mid-30s early 40s and then I started really wow I'm wasting my life away did you see that discovery process through these interviews that you did through the different people i think that was one of the most interesting things i, I didn't really know what i'd get uh you know you, you you try to 
plot your path before you go there and you think about your own your own history and where it's leading you and then you jump into a project like this where you're going to ask other people and you have some expectation even if you're hesitant to uh to override their vision but i was really interested to see what emerged i mean clearly i'm picking people this isn't these aren't average people they're people who either have done something interesting or seem like they'll be interesting or were important in my life in the past. Um, and I, I did want to split the interviews into these three age groups, which I did. And you can do that fairly easily, even in the printed book, because everything's labeled. Um, and the older people, I mean, this is my summary. The older people sort of had a biography written. Um, their interaction with the world and the choices they made defined who they were and how they presented themselves. Um, they were more or less well put together. But I would say also that the most creative of them were the least rigid. Uh, they were open-minded, they were chaotic, anarchistic almost, uh, self-deprecating because uh, they didn't have anything to prove uh, at this point. They were, you know, notable and successful in their own ways. Um, it's interesting that you bring up Neil, because Neil is one of the more organized people. I mean, that's why he's good as a journalist and as a spokesperson. Um, he's not the kind of uh, creative artist that... Uh, turns people off as a lot of creative artists almost every creative artist i can think of has gone through a period where people don't know what the hell they're doing yeah. um that's right and they kind of drop their whole fan base um but neil has always been very directed toward building a character as a spokesperson and that is what he is now he's the sort of the the, the spokesperson for science and, and so you, you can appreciate that that's good and bad, depending on what the topic and your goal is. Um, and so in, in this case, where I asked him a direct question, he gave me direct answers, but his, he's also still in touch with uh, his enthusiasm, his childhood, and um, his inspiration. And I think that's really a very important part of his presentation. Um, but he's what I would consider a middle-aged person. So the older people are different. And they're very, I, I love reading and interviewing older people. You know, we're talking about, you know, really old people, uh, sort of near end of life, the ones that really don't give a shit anymore. Um, yeah. It's not even, they don't even say that because it's not even, they don't even care about not giving a shit anymore. It's just like <laughs> they've, they've got a half a foot or they've got a foot in some other world already. And, yeah. and a lot of these people did pass on not long after I interviewed them. Um, they were already stepping out of their, you know, social personality into, uh, you know, the infinity of time. And then the, so, so they give some great stories, uh, and they connect or uh, like this one guy who was, uh, Clarence C who I just sort of, I didn't know he was so interesting. He was just the, an 
aircraft mechanic, but he went back to the Civil War and he said, you know, my character was built for my grandfather who was a, a, a barn builder in the Civil War. And here I am talking to somebody who's telling me what it's like to grow up in 1850. And yeah. you know, we think it's just a historical question, but it's it's a totally different culture. You know, the way that people lived on horses and the way there was no machines. And yeah. it's like, that's beautiful to uh, to have that brought into the current day and what it does to a person's development. And then the middle-aged people were... Uh, kind of more what you'd expect, you know, they're culturally engaged with our culture and our needs, and uh, they're working their way up whatever ladder they're on um, professionally. Um, they tend to sound almost gladiatorial, glad gladiatorial, uh, you know, like they're, they're fighters or they're uh, go-getters. And there's kind of, there can be less emotion in their stories because they're much more material and practical and pragmatic. Um, and uh, But not always. Sometimes there's some incredible subtlety. Um, I, I really love my friend Tom Kellogg, who, was, uh, who is an excavator, but he's got some physical disability. It's not clear what it is, some sort of nerve thing. And uh, he likes to work alone, and he's very enthusiastic, and he's totally positive. He, I mean, you could call him, he could be a disabled person, but he'd be the last person to bother with, with that. You know, he just like, it's just like <laughs> right. whatever, you know, is he's, he's a inspiring person and he's totally positive. Um, he's like more positive than you can. He's got like positive stuff in reserve that, you know, if you start poking at his personality, he'll just start laughing and he'll get you laughing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's cool. Kind of enlightened. And then the young people were beautiful too. I, again, I I picked interesting young people. Uh but not entirely uh what you'd call Oh, well, I did pick a few of them who were like successful academic. I I went to a school for gifted kids in Georgia and interviewed a bunch. Um but, you know, even so, they've got real lives with real problems that real adolescents encounter. And uh, their gift might often be just that they speak well and uh, they think clearly. It, not necessarily they're gifted in, uh, you know, easy lives. And uh, another one of my favorite. Oh, well, yeah. So in the art area, of course, you get the most chaotic people. Uh, and um, the, the first person in the book, the young person who I put in the category of art, was a basically a juvenile delinquent, and uh, yeah. I didn't expect to interview him. I was I was uh, visiting his father for some other reason, who's a sort of leading medical doctor in Los Angeles, and um, I met this kid at the pool and started asking about his story. And it was just so, I don't know. I, I mean, you can imagine somebody who's who's a vandal and a, a dropout and a drug addict and, you know, as a teenager, also doesn't really give a shit about protocol. They'll tell you what's on their yeah. mind. And um, yeah. his stories kind of blew me away. 
And the thing that was great about his stories is that he came back to ground and he said, you know, I've, I've found my feet again. And I put him in the art category just because everything he did in his life was, I guess you'd call it artistic, but it was still not clear what he was going to do with himself. But it did seem like he was finished with hurting people. And, um, and, uh, putting himself at great risk. Um, so that compared to like the privileged kids in the advanced school and um, some other kids with uh, what you might call burdens or disabilities or obstacles. In spite of that, the way that people spoke really did seem to break down into youth, middle age, and elderhood. And I don't know if it, it, it may be cultural. I mean, I guess it probably is. We're all sort of living in the same soup. Um, yeah. But um, the young people were, you know, open-minded and, and emotionally vulnerable, just sort of building their membrane, protective membrane. Um, as I said, one one woman who was abused as a kid um, was getting over that, but she was in her middle age already. Um, and the you know, and other people lived really, really tough lives. You know, lives of poverty. Uh, I'm just thinking of one in particular, um, a Hispanic kid who grew up constantly going through foster homes and you know, single mother family with no relatives and very little income and uh, his story was great because he the profession he took up was graffiti artist which is like the most mm. ridiculous profession uh, i mean you can imagine a, a, a teenager doing it but now he was a sort of professional graffiti artist and he's all these stories of he's the only person i've ever known who met those people we've heard of who live in in the subway in the dark tunnels of New York subways. Yeah. So he actually found yeah. them when he was fleeing from the police. Um, <laughs> and uh, well, I'd like to know, you know, about their lives. Anyway, so that so that's the story. And and uh, as I said, the one woman who was uh, the gay black woman said, you know, I wish I learned to love myself sooner. And that's sort of been yeah. resonating in my head for you know the last decade. Yeah, it, it's a big question. Uh, what does that there, actually mean? There's definitely an arc there. You know, there's there's the I don't give a shit. And then you build into this more mature mindset and then you drop back into the I don't give a shit. Yeah. It's it's yeah, funny right. how the lifespan really works. You know, when I when I started talking with people and trying to discover what this is all about you know it's a discovery process i went to the homeless people and i started there and i really wanted to understand why are you here you know I, i've been homeless myself and I, I know it takes a lot of strength to get yourself back out of that or you're going to fall into it stay there and become nothing and uh just be what that tells you you are 
there is that mindset where I I just want to be here. Uh, it's it's easy. There's no checks and balances to it. I really don't have to answer to anything. But when we really get to the bottom of it, there's a lot you answer to in a lot worse ways when you put yourself under those conditions. And the only way we can discover that is through these conversations. And a lot of people don't take that conversation to the homeless population. They, they, it's taboo. You know, you're there for a reason. And I, I really understand because I've dealt with it all my life, seeing people go through this disparity where you really don't have to be there. Why are you there? And it's it's one of those things that fascinate me. You are an intelligent into my brother, for instance, very intelligent, but he has this wild streak about him where he's got to chase that thrill. And, you know, he's, he's older than me. He's almost in his seventies now. And he's still on that mentality. I, I, I often wonder what it takes to break that cycle, that cycle of thinking. So I, I see that he understands there's a way out and he has watched me go through this stage of you've got to strip that out of your life and try to place yourself where you want to be. Don't place yourself where people or your mind tells you you have to be. There's a big difference. But what is that breakaway point? And I, I still haven't discovered that myself, even going through the process. I know it's about setting healthy boundaries and having a sense of pride about yourself. How do we? Put that into people that are down and out, you know, in that homeless category or that rebellious category in the earlier stage of life, usually, but not always. Uh, I've witnessed it where it can happen to their death. What's the psychology behind that? Uh, I love the question because there is no one psychology behind that i have my psychology which i'm still working on and it mm -hmm. breaks down into uh intellectual pride emotional pride and um i don't know spiritual pride <clears throat> when i say pride i mean <clears throat> self-confidence or, or or vision and then uh you know, there's this social world that we we feel ourselves being funneled into uh, first in our adolescence and then, you know, in our young adulthood. And I think I have to say, I think the social world is really the most fucked up. It, it, it manifests the most conflict. And uh, I mean, I was really disturbed with this war in the Ukraine. I thought what kind of war was behind us, you know. 
that you know we we look at the the past wars of of uh, hand-to-hand combat yeah. and the future wars of, of total annihilation and we get our shit together and and um not do that anymore and here it is flaring up again in, in a big way and we can see the you know it's kind of like blowing on the embers now we're talking about war with china people don't really want to talk about it but it's not far from possibility and then the world has been full of these little proxy wars which are really violent and really awful and um you know if this is what society shows us teaches us and asks us to accept it's not very healthy and then finally there's uh i i, I have to really say it's been healthy for me to become a therapist because now I get to talk to other people and say, you know, what the hell? Well, I don't actually, I'm not supposed to ask them to answer my questions. I'm supposed to be there to help them answer their questions. But in the process, I get to see what they think. And uh, the whole thing doesn't work unless everybody's fairly honest. I say fairly because this is like an onion. You know, there's those layers of honesty and truth and reality that you peel back. And the more you peel them back, the more honest they seem to get, but also the less clear they get. You sort of get back to your childhood emotional upbringing, and it's very raw and very strong, but now you're back to where you didn't know what was going on and trying to figure it out again. And uh, then you get to the issue of, you know, how are you going to figure this stuff out? Uh, Do you need to go back to the uh, trauma when you were injured or uh, otherwise threatened or do you need to let it go and say you know that was it's like if you had abusive parents do you need to return to the abuse or do you need to understand the parents or do you just need to realize that they went off on a dead end and you want to don't want to go down there you know that's like it's their funeral and you don't want to make it your funeral And that's often what I find myself doing in therapy. It's telling people, it's not your problem. You know, it was somebody else's problem, ancestral, cultural, um, you know, a bad bad hand of cards that somebody was dealt or uh, otherwise misfortune. And uh, as you were saying, I think, or at least as I was hearing, Um, You have to envision where you want to go and what you want to be outside of what other people are telling you and what you think you've been forced into becoming. And until you do that, you're not really free. And even when you do that, it's not clear. Now you're like, okay, now now I can do anything, maybe. How do I decide? Um, And as, as I said to you, I love being lost. I mean, this is the thing I think is important. Yeah. If you learn to love yourself enough, you can be lost because you feel you always right. have your um, positive feeling of yourself no matter where you are. And in that, you can really follow the currents and your emotion, your intuition, your instinct, and get away from what you've been taught and told and how you've been graded and uh, rewarded or punished. And that's what I, that's the thing I try to do with people. So I, uh, this is interesting. It takes us slightly in different direction, but not really. 
I find to do that, to get into what's important and intuitive and instinctive, you have to get out of your intellectual mind. I mean, it's not that you discard it and throw it away. It's just that you realize it's just one tool, but maybe not the right one. Doesn't fit all screws and nuts. Um, so I'm, I am, and I have always been interested in trance, states of trance, alternate states of perception and reality, appreciation being uh, extreme. And I think you can appreciate that with your story about your brother being extreme emotional states. The key is being able to navigate these states and not to get lost That's in any tributary, but to be able to explore them because <clears throat> they're not irrelevant. Even if they're dark and um, sad, if they're important to you, they probably got something valuable in them. But if you can't navigate them, you'll get stuck. So I'm, I use hypnosis to get people into states of memory, emotion, because hypnosis is reversible. You can go in and you can come out. And as a hypnotherapist, that's what my role is, to help people hold their hand or uh, keep track of how they got in and remind them because your memory gets all kind of messed up. Memory of the past, the present, um, you forget things, you lose track of time. And I'm there to um, take notes. <clears throat> and then you can read the notes afterwards. And then I've been involved, uh, you know, we didn't mention it, but I, I was involved in mountaineering as a youth. That really got me out of what I considered the unpleasant, affluent childhood. Um, and you can imagine, you know, having money doesn't, my family was well off, but it doesn't solve your childhood questions about being loved and accepted. Um, That's right. Uh, so I, I got into mountain climbing because that involved me with people who were really authentic because you're holding the lifeline literally to other people and you got to know that they're going to be there when um, the line gets taught, that they're going to hold you. It's kind of metaphorical, but it's also real. So I appreciated that. And then there's a lot of suffering in that because of the, the extreme physical um, exertion you have to put in and the places you find yourself. Um, I would say that I've been thinking about that recently. There was a movie recently called Free Solo, which is about Alex Honnold's ascent of uh, the 3,000 foot cliff El Cap without any rope or protection. And it's a scary kind of movie. And I remember that I did something like that. Uh, my cliff was 1,200 feet instead of 3,500 feet, but I didn't have a rope and I was alone. And it was uh, roughly vertical. Anyway, it's hard to, to recall those things. I'm happy to say I only did it once. And uh, it, was, it wasn't foolish in the sense that I, I was prepared, but I wouldn't do it again. Uh, not only because I have a family, which I do, but because, uh, you know, when you're doing something really risky, you can't focus on all the things that might go wrong. You can't look down, you know. Yeah, that's almost metaphorical. You know, you can't, you shouldn't look down. I mean, you may be pursued by the demons of hell, but don't look down. You know, you look forward, yeah. 
you look across and you build your 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 structure and um anyway it's not a healthy thing to do to to climb huge cliffs without a rope by yourself anyway i did it once and it was very interesting because you get so much focus you have to focus it's an unreal state of mind um so now when I deal with people in therapy, I have to kind of remind them, remind them that everything we do is a somewhat unreal state of mind. We're sort of fabricating what we choose to believe in. And we're either looking down, which maybe we shouldn't, or maybe we're looking too high at things that other people tell us we should be going toward. But uh, yeah, that was another thing in, in my book. A lot of people said, you know, don't focus on what you're told is your, should be your goal. Because even if you're successful and you get there, it's not going to have any meaning if it never had any meaning. Yeah. Um, yeah. But how, how much how much passion did you discover in that process? You know, because I find that most successful people have a passion about what they're doing. And that really helps you maintain that focus and that direction. I wouldn't necessarily call it passion as much as necessity. Um, hmm. If you feel you have to do something, it's good to be passionate about it. And if you feel you have to do something and you don't like it, well, then you're in a struggle. So, you know, we hear about, you know, struggling artists. They're not doing it because uh, they're being rewarded. They're doing it because they have to do it. Or, you know, I project uh you know, your brother, why does he continue to do what he's doing? Probably because he feels he has to. Um, is he passionate? Well, he's certainly involved. Again, I'm projecting. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. um, and I think passion is what you get when you feel like you can't do anything but go forward. And you could either be depressed about it. And, you know, some people are. Like I said, as therapy, you deal with people who feel that they can't... Um, do anything about what's happening to them and they're not happy with it. And that makes them depressed. I mean, you have to realize sadness is different from depression. Depression is like feeling like shit. Sadness is just regretting that you're in this position. It doesn't mean like you feel terrible in your soul. That's another step. And uh, I talk to people about that. You know, are you, what are you creating here and how much of it is your creation? Um, what could you do about it? There's a kind of other side to passion, which is sort of inevitability or necessity. So people can feel compelled, even if they're not passionate, they can be resentful or regretful or angry about a situation they feel they have to pursue, or they can feel passionate about it. I do find that most people who would call themselves successful are passionate they are not they don't resent they don't regret um and that's not necessarily true with uh, therapy often you get people who are struggling and they're not happy they're not passionate about the, their situation well they may be passionate about not their desire not to be in their situation i mean the obvious thing is relationships relationships are really ambiguous and um you have a lot of passion, but you wish it was working to your advantage and it's not, or something like that. Um, sometimes you feel like you have the ability to make uh, choices with your romantic partners and other times with your family, you don't have choices. 
Yeah. I think passion is really being connected to your emotion. And um, I don't tell people as a therapist that they should be passionate, but I do tell them that they should be connected to their emotion. Well, should. I try not to tell them that they should be anything, but uh, I try to find out where they're going that's rewarding or will reward them. And it's a combination of being more involved and less involved, more involved with what you want, less involved with what you don't. So I guess, I mean, the question of passion, it, it kind of dissolves into the question of necessity and opportunity. And uh, the third part is uh, trauma, memory, and experience. I think a lot of people need, and I'm not being God about this, but they seem to need to process their past. It would be valuable, and they seem to be driven toward it, and there seems to be some solution that will come out of it. So how do you help them with that? Or even can you? And my answer is that you try to be there, not just in the present, but in their world and say, you know, if I were your brother or if I were the angel sitting on your shoulder, what would I tell you? What could I tell you? Um, and really, the interesting thing is that the goal of that approach is for them to find the angel sitting on their shoulder, uh, who isn't really yeah. you. And uh, if they find that, I mean, you can imagine if you can get in contact with your spiritual muse or your spiritual guide, I mean, you don't need anyone else. No one would be as good as that energy. And, That's right. And, 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 you know, a lot of us don't have that energy. I'm not sure any of us have that energy, uh, you know, all the time. Uh, right. I think that's what therapy is. And I don't even like calling it therapy because that makes it sound like you're sick. You're not sick. You're almost transforming. I mean, would you call a, a snake that was molting an animal that needed therapy? No. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lincoln, that's that's very interesting because there's a whole subset of the population, especially in the homeless area, where they they don't have the sense of worth or value and understanding how to find that is a lost art nobody teaches you that especially when you come from a family set that's destructive by by nature so how how do we convince people to connect and understand getting that off of your chest and divulging your inner thoughts can actually help you know i found it through podcasting but understanding releasing that can actually make you say hey i'm free from it i i understand it's just a thing how do we get those people connected to therapy that works I think my answer is kind of like your answer. And that answer is through relationship. Um, I've found, uh, so here, here are two, two examples. I think if, if you can't get 
if you can't make progress, if you can't find answers, if you can't get relief, you often develop physical illness. I'm not exactly sure why, but it seems to be something telling you you've got to break out or you're going to suffer real damage. And maybe that gets people to realize something that they wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise if it was just a concept. Um, so I deal, and I'm always interested to deal with people who have physical problems, physical illness, because all physical illness has some mental aspect to it, even if it's just a broken bone. You know, why did you break the bone in the first place? And what are you doing to heal it? And what could you do to foster its better healing? And these are mental questions, even though the bone might be a kind of a very practical mechanical question. But for most people, chronic illness is not even mechanical at all. In fact, it's often not even clear if or what the mechanical problem is with things like um, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, you know, um, and it's so it's it's really interesting to work with those people because they have a clear, most of them have a clear point at which they don't want to go. They don't want to, and I'm not generalizing to everybody, but generalizing to my client base, they don't really want to hear that they're responsible for their situation. And I understand that because that's it feels disempowering. It's like it's your fault. Now you feel guilty. Maybe you felt guilty before. Now you feel more guilty. But the point is that until you do accept some power, you don't have any power to change. You're, you're, you're a victim. And we always hear about how bad it is to be a victim. It's not always so bad. Sometimes it gets you out of being a victim. You have to get into it to get out of it. Um, yeah. So that's one state of mind. And the other is people who I consider psychotic or psychopathic who just won't see anything wrong with the way they feel and act. And they don't want to talk to you and they don't want to share. And they're just out for uh, personal gain. And, you know, that could we could reward that if it's money and politics and power, or maybe it's uh, antisocial and uh, emotionally violent or exploitative. And then we don't value it. So the whole notion of what's you know psychopathic and what's laudable is is very slippery Interesting. and makes me very kind of upset socially. But uh, as a therapist, you kind of uh, tread the in between. Uh, and the question is, well, do you want to redirect somebody so that instead of torturing their employees, they focus on making everybody profitable, or do you want to focus on like getting past that need? to always gain at someone else's expense and, you know, find love in your family. And you ask, how do you do this? Whatever you're doing, I think the answer is always, you can't really do it. You can only invite or uh, entice mm. or uh, convince, cajole, um, sweeten the idea. But the other people, it's like leading a horse, except you have no tether. It's like, how would you lead a horse if you didn't have a string or a rope? You'd like have to convince it to follow you. And now you get to the question, well, do people understand each other? Are you communicating? Do they trust you? And so therapy is mostly about trying to communicate and understand and get trust. And then you feel alliance and you build 
collegial relationship and you then you can start suggesting or um you know creating visioning and uh supporting and as i mentioned i try to bring people into a trance state where they can appreciate their different parts the parts of them that they don't listen to or that they're ashamed of um, or that they feel in combat or uh, antagonistic to, to let those parts come out. We have this one personality that kind of we are told to maintain and advance, and it often deprecates and disrespects parts of us, certainly certain memories and experiences we've had. Um, I think we could all bring up childhood memories where we felt really put down and disrespected. And we, you know, we don't go back there. Don't want to go back there. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a question. Is there a benefit to going back there? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on your approach. Um, I like doing dream work with people because dreams are great because they're just so chaotic. Hmm. you can do all you want to make sense of things but when it comes to a dream it's just like a core dump of emotions and memories and try to figure it out or figure something useful out of it is a great exercise um so for example you know you asked me when we started i don't know if it was recorded how do i feel today and i said i felt sad and part of the reason i was feeling sad was i was thinking about childhood stuff and where i am and where I've not achieved, I was thinking about what I learned about you and your story and um, this uh, learning project story. And it was kind of making me sad. And that's okay. You know, you, you have to feel it's okay to enter into weakness. Um, you know, it's like if you want to build strength in a muscle, uh, you have to work on it. Uh, you know, if you've got poor lower body strength and great upper body strength, if you only worked on upper body strength, then you'd never get lower body strength. So I, that's why I think of it. To be a rounded individual means working on all kinds of strengths. And a lot of them are, I don't know, it's not a simple answer. Some things just don't taste good. But if you don't yeah. try them, you may never learn to like them. Yeah. You know, I, I really think uh, there needs to be a lot more individuals that just muster up the strength to go into the homeless areas or areas where these people form. And I, I think just a good conversation, letting them know it's okay to live, you know, uh, I, I find that once you connect with people, they they will open up. And it's strange, but they won't open up until you connect with them. So there's something about that connection. The human needs a connection. And once it's sparked, it's fascinating what comes out. You know, they they will tell you some of the things that you would never have thought 
an individual would open up about honesty getting that childlike honesty is hard especially when you've been broken per se in in the world so mental health is very important it's got a stigma to it and i i find it sometimes very difficult and hard to reach out and ask for a mental health help because you're going to get that tagged on the record someplace or something like that we need that gone we need that sort of thing out of our life where we feel that way how how can we make that happen where people can actually feel like they're not being recorded for some some trauma later because that's what it feels like let me give you some answers that have crossed my mind i can't give you solid answers a big question one of the problems i feel is that we've divided the whole process of growth into illness um feedback and entrepreneurship so you're either one or the other and if you're an illness you need a therapist and if you're uh, need feedback you get a <laughs> yeah and if you're a business person you get an entrepreneur but the truth is that everybody's all of those things and you certainly want to move so you you'd like the person who thinks they're ill to think that they're an entrepreneur you know and and move their focus toward accomplishment and uh reward for themselves at least but you'd also like the the people who are entrepreneurs, these sociopathic politicians, what we seem to catapult into the world, we'd like them to go back and get their shit together because they're resonating with a lot of sort of antisocial attitudes that uh, they profit from stirring up. And uh, we'd like them to be more like, um, you know, more saintly and less satanic. And so this division is a problem and it's not just problem at at the way we're thinking but it's the way people are trained and certified and unfortunately there's money so you're not going to get anybody to spend time with you unless somebody pays them because it costs money to live and so the so the lower income bracket which would be homeless and you know whatever or maybe even average like you say one of the reasons that you're reluctant and most people are reluctant um to engage with counseling is that it costs you know have to overcome you know what's it worth to me you know is a hundred dollars a week you know do i really need this um but if you're gonna if you have no money at all then you're reliant on you know basically state services and those services i have to say are not entirely built for you to excel they're kind of there to contain you to uh make you not so much of a problem for other people. I mean, this is the whole mm. thing about mental health, you know, give them a pill. Um, yeah. And people accept that kind of stuff. Uh, and I've just been reading this morning that uh, in both depression and schizophrenia, over a period of a few years, people do much better if they don't get on pharmaceuticals than if they do. Um, so the process of working your your, your issues out you know, 80% of the time gets you out 
of your depression, and surprisingly to me, um, returns you to being function if you were schizophrenic. But taking the antipsychotics and antidepressives largely lock you into it. And that's that's more that's more than just depressing. It's it's kind of frightening. Um, and I can only think that over time there will be a change, but I'm not sure which yeah. change it'll be. So the question is like, how, how do, you know, how does a homeless person or anybody who doesn't have the funds get into the system of getting help? And then how do you navigate that system? Because do you want a shrink? Do you want to be told that you have a disease or that you're ill? I, uh, I don't buy yeah, into that. Point. You know, and if that's all you're going to get, because that's all that, you know, the social service therapist offers, you got a different problem on your hands. And I think that's that's kind of the answer to your question. There's no answer. In the yeah. society we live in, there's something systemic about these problems. Um, you know, they say that uh, 3% unemployment is natural or, or acceptable. And I have a suspicion that a certain percent of mental illness is also natural and acceptable. Yeah. And you know yeah. these are just the people who fall along the wayside in, in the in the war to uh, greater gross natural national product. Yeah, it's it's an interesting life we're living. <laughs> and Lincoln, it seems like it, it gets worse instead of better when we talk about these social services. And it, it's really up to people to shine light on it. And that's that's kind of go ahead. This is what I'd like to do. I'd like to build our own army of counselors, of regular people who help each other. They mm -hmm. don't have to be, you know, if we could make friendship a, a process of personal growth rather than, um, you know, just gaining entertainment. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, this is sort of what happened in the COVID experience. A lot of people said, uh, they sort of winnowed through their friendship list and said, these people are not my friends because they don't really support me in my struggle. They have an attitude that's contrary to mine. And we kind of got, you know, the pro versus the anti-government story camps. And I know a lot of people whose, whose social circles were fractured along that line. And I'd like to say that uh, in terms of therapy, mental health counseling and coaching, um, we have to build our own territory rather than trying to fix it. I'm just not a fix it person. I'm a do it kind of person. So yeah. I, I tell my clients, we all need to become therapists for each other. And, uh, and it, so that we're not charging each other. I mean, I, I, I charge because that's my thing, but I'd rather not, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather yeah. not charge anybody. Yeah, I understand that thought. You know, it, I, I often wrap my brain around that. How can we get these services where they're free? You know, just just a mentorship or a friendship that that is a big turning point in our society. Bringing back the connection, the the focal point should be on community. You know, yeah. because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about everybody. And what's right for me is not necessarily right for you. And we have that 
fight, push, pull, tug of war going on. And it, it's easier than that, but it all boils down to the buck. And that that's what we all need to keep going. But when that's truly our only focus, I think it's detrimental in many ways. So yeah. finding that freedom and ability to help, it is key to success. Just to complicate it a little more, there are <laughs> to learn from indigenous cultures, which I've always been mm. in. And what you can learn from indigenous cultures is that the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. So I I spent a week with uh, a group of people in the Queen Charlotte Islands called the Haida, and they're one of the mm. older and more warlike Pacific Northwest groups. And uh, I spent the week with a chief. I don't know how many chiefs there are, probably more than one. And uh, he said, you know, in, in our culture, everybody is in everybody else's business. And, and this is kind of where we're going when we say, you know, friends should be deeper and friends should be more therapeutically supportive. And you get into these cultures where everybody's in everybody's business. And he says, it's, it's hell because nobody leaves you alone. Everybody's got their attitude and they're all telling you what they need and they're all telling you what they want. And to be a chief in his tribe, you have to put a tremendous amount of money into paying everybody else off because you're only <laughs> voted chief in proportion to how well you support everyone else. And, you know, you got to buy them boats and couches and houses and land. <laughs> and so that the chiefs yeah. have to be rich because they can't afford, you know, and so it's funny that uh, it's not just this indigenous group, but others as well, where everybody supports everybody else until somebody gets ahead. And then everybody's on their back trying to, you know, trying to piggyback it's, on their success. It's the tall poppy syndrome. And so it's very funny, you know, so we decry our culture where we, you know, extol success and prosperity. And then you look at these cultures where nobody can get ahead because everybody expects you to help everybody else. And um, in those cultures, there is no poverty. There is no homelessness. There are no orphans. Everybody's taken care of and everybody's bitchy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember I spent years in the Caribbean and uh, I would hang out with the locals and this one guy had a had a baseball cap that said another shitty day in paradise. And um <laughs> and I thought, you know, exactly. That's that's the, the summary. I'm left with the feeling that this is our work. You know, we're not gonna get the fountain of youth, you know, the thousand virgins and you know, angels playing on harps and clouds. This is our work. And yeah. um, our, if our culture is fucked up, well, part of our work is to work with our culture. And if we're fucked That's up, right. well, part of our work is to elevate ourselves. So That's you right. say enthusiasm and, and, and passion. Well, are you passionate for your success? Or are you passionate for your process? And I, I have to say, I think you have to be passionate for the process. Because the more enlightened yeah. you become, the more other people's troubles you find yourself um considering 
And yeah. that has to be a reward. You know, you have to right. sort of become saintly, which we think is ridiculous, right? We think, you know, Mother Teresa is just a, a weirdo. We would never want to be that person, work with lepers and, you know, people so down and out. But I think that's the, your future. If you want to really enlighten yourself, you're going to find yourself working with people who need your help. And that has to be come a calling. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing we've said all this whole interview, you know, that that is true wisdom right there. And when we find that calling and that process, once we determine the process, understand the process and implement the process, it starts working miracles, as we call them in our life. The, you I, I know, wish I, it did. I'm still struggling myself. I think we all do, right? I, I was I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, and you know I I deal with that chronic pain syndrome in my muscles all the time, and the more I grow with that and understanding more about it, they say it's a, a basket case disease and all of that but truly what i've identified is when i am super stressed worrying and got so much chronic nonsense on my mind that's when i get flare-ups of these muscle things and it's interesting you stated that our psychological effects our physical it's so true uh, I witness it every day and I understand that. So keeping positive and keeping oriented without the stress is truly key. And that's discovering who you truly are and knowing your limits and putting boundary on those limits. Well, another duality I struggle with is religion. I'm very anti-religious. But then what I mean by that is I'm anti-dogmatic because mm -hmm. I have to appreciate that some of the most enlightened people are religious. But then they don't mean it in the sense of being pro-dogmatic. They mean it in the sense of uh, being guided Spiritual. by something. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, the last thing I'll ever do is pray. Yet at the same time, every time I wake up in the morning, I go through a list of all the people I love. And that's a kind of a prayer. I just won't, I refuse to call it religion. Yeah. Yeah. But there's something about intentionally focusing on what's out of your grasp and what you yes. think is sort of the highest moral ground, which is necessary. Um, I tell my clients sometimes that uh, their work is not just benefiting them. And the reason they have that work is not just for their own benefit, but that all the people who've uh, struggled in their lives or oppressed them or continue to be dysfunctional uh, stand to gain from their progress, even if they're not in contact with those people anymore, even if those people aren't alive anymore. I I, mm. I don't even know how that works, but you know <laughs> these connections we have. Uh, you know, like my mother was, I don't know what was wrong with my mother, but she didn't have an ability to be emotionally supportive to me. And so she's been dead 10 years. And uh, 
she was never supportive uh, of anyone I knew, really. And But I mean, I was a kid. I didn't really know what was going on. So I'm still working on that, obviously, looking for support. And, you know, that's my problem. I get involved with the relationships and I ask too much of them. Well, I don't think so, but I guess I do. Or at least I get it. See, this is the problem. I get involved with people like my mother who can't provide for me. And then I ask them to provide for me, which makes complete sense. <laughs> it's absolutely a terrible yeah. you know, strategy. And, and, um, and I feel that in overcoming that, I will benefit my mother or whatever is left of her in the family lineage or maybe in the society because I'll be able to see it and support it and appreciate it and advance it, that problem that she had, which I don't understand. You know, it, it could have been trauma or it could have been, I don't know what it could have been. It, again, it could have been something her, she inherited because she came from Eastern Europe and there's all kinds of, you know, shit going on in the past of, yeah. uh, you know, Jews and Middle East and God knows what. Oh, yeah. That yeah. stuff. Down. <laughs> um, so this is what I say to people. Uh, your work is not just your own. Uh, so we talked about yeah. how to lift yourself up and be more available to other people. You could also say that working with other people doesn't just in, doesn't just advance them. It advances you. Um, I that's think right. That's pretty easy to grasp. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I get that every day. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, that's why I like to discuss things with people that actually put mind set to the topic. They actually get into it. They are truly curious and want to discover, is there an answer to all this? And maybe there isn't. You know, who knows? Uh, the point is discovery. Life is never ending process of learning and discovery and if you grasp that acknowledge it 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 can help quite a bit also the concept of evolution people think it means progress evolution doesn't mean progress it just means change and reconfiguration toward greater something not even balance mm -hmm. right because the ecologies are not yeah. I mean, they're they're sort of balanced, but they're very dynamic. So I think in personalities and in cultures and in uh, families, you have to accept that there's a certain evolution that you're a part of. And when you say, I don't know if there's an answer, I can I can assure you there's no answer. You know, is there an answer <laughs> to evolution? I, who knows? I mean, if everything stops, then uh, eventually it dies. That, that's the answer. Yeah. Well, then, you know, yeah. but aside from that, it's just... Turbulent, somewhat unpredictable, um, opportunistic, and full of uh, dead ends. Um, yeah, and and you know it's like you know where is a tree's branch branch supposed to grow? No one place. That's why they grow out in all directions. Yeah. Um, so well, I'm, I think I want to mention this book so that people can get back to it. Yeah. My website is mindstrengthbalance.com. And if you go to the learning page, I hope you'll find the book. It takes one more click to get there. Um, yep. uh, and the book is free online or you can get it. No, I didn't make it as an audio book. We can get it as a digital book and a printed book and so forth. But it's free online. 
and I like the online navigation of it. So uh, yes, mindstrengthbalance.com is where you can find it. Okay. Well, Lincoln, it's, it's fascinating that we've had this opportunity to talk and discover new things. Uh, I really get, I can go on for hours about the human mind and, you know, discovery. It's a never ending process. Do you have a call to action for our listeners today? I have a free blog that I put out once a month. If you go to the website, one of those pop-ups will appear shortly and ask you to put in your email. And if you do that, you'll have a connection to my work and my thoughts and my books, uh, uh, my games, my therapy, my, you know, all this stuff. And it's a rich website. I've been writing for years and I have a bunch of books on sleep and dreams, book on COVID, three books on learning, one of which we've talked about. I, I should mention that after I wrote this book called The Learning Project, which I mentioned was so non-complete, incomplete, so general and broad, I felt people would benefit from a few nuggets of wisdom that I'd gotten from these interviews. So I wrote two more books, which were just points, bulletin points almost, of what learning and progress consist of. And I thought it would be one book, it turned out to be two but you can find those there under the books tab. Um, if you want answers, that's full of answers, which, which you'd find interesting too, because uh, we've just talked about how there are no answers. So that's not yeah, satisfying yeah. often. <laughs> there are answers. They're just not I love it. final answers, you know? Yeah, that's right. You know, you, you must seek to learn and, and understanding what you learn. That's a process all of its own so i love it what you're doing and you've got a fascinating website i've ordered the print book and now you've enticed me to actually go and order the other two so i will be doing that also thank you so much for sharing with us today i will share all your links with our folks in the show notes have a good day and continue enlightening people about change and life's mysteries. Thanks, Ed. I really appreciate your help. Anybody who subscribes will be helping too. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, Please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.